0: At the end of April on Earth Week, Sustainable Carolina hosted its first ever sustainability research symposium. Research is a big component of our sustainability operation here at UNC Chapel Hill. This event was a manifestation of this core idea that research and academics push sustainability forward. Generating new ideas and fostering collaborations translates to a future with more opportunity to embrace sustainability. During the symposium, nine experts from across UNC Chapel Hill schools and departments gave lightning talks. On today's special bonus episode, we'll hear from two of the groups, both of which talked about utilities and the infrastructure they rely on to provide a service to customers. All right, so we first heard from Greg Shiraklis, director of the Center on Financial Risk and Environmental Systems housed within UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health and the UNC Institute for the Environment. COFIRES analyzes disruptive environmental events and looks at the financial impact of those events. I'm going to go ahead and roll Shiraklis' clip from the event because he is much better at explaining this than me.
1: Environmental financial risks are growing. Billion-dollar disaster events, droughts, wildfires, floods, extreme temperatures, and so forth. And we see them increasing for a couple of reasons. We have uh, increasing assets at risk. Think about the Outer Banks what they looked like 30 or 40 years ago and what they look like now same hurricane hits the damages are very different right and then we have increasing frequency and severity of, of some of these extreme events as a result of climate change
0: for those of us in the sustainability space this isn't really news we know that because of our changing climate we're going to see an increase in these events that Chiraclis describes but what comes after these events and what happens to the financial and economic systems as a result really nuanced
1: so this is getting the attention of a lot of different folks um those of you that have heard of the world economic forum it's where the political leaders captains of industry get together each year in a, a beautiful ski resort in switzerland and one of the things they do is they rank the impact and likelihood of global risks the high impact high likelihood events are the ones that we're most worried about and these include things like natural disasters water crises extreme weather events and failure to adapt or or mitigate climate change. So it's gotten an increasing amount of attention from folks within government. There was an executive order from the White House in uh, 2021, wherein the president asked all federal agencies to evaluate their climate-related financial risk and then to to begin to develop strategies for managing it. In the private sector, investors, lenders are starting to look at these risks uh, much more carefully than they used to. We've always got variability in the natural system whether it's precipitation, stream flow, temperature, wind speed, et cetera. Some of that is connected directly to the economic and financial system, but often the engineered system mediates some of these extremes, right? Things like dams and reservoirs, aqueducts, uh, energy generation systems that turn turn uh, uh, wind and, and sunshine into electricity. Um, and then there's the connection to the economic and financial system, energy markets, water markets, Uh, pricing, conservation rules, uh, environmental uh, uh, regulations, and so forth, all part of this institutional system. And so this cascade eventually trickles down to these measurable financial outcomes. So revenues, costs, net revenues.
0: All right, that was a lot of information coming at you at one time, but I promise it will make more sense in a second. Chiraclis illustrated the interconnectedness of natural, engineered, and financial systems by talking about hydropower. Hydropower is often used as a peaking source of energy. That is, at times of the day when demand is really high. Think midsummer in the middle of the day. Nuclear and coal, which are commonly used as primary energy sources, can't ramp up quickly to handle these peaks. But hydropower and natural gas, they can.
1: So let's get back to this hydropower question. So I told you that there's this cascade of systems. So I want to give you a really quick example uh, of how we think about these systems. First thing we need to know if we're going to think about hydropower variability is how is hydropower used? Well, in a lot of different regions of the country, it's used as a peaking source. So what you see here is electricity demand over a week uh, in the summertime. And what you see is it rises up in the late afternoon, in the early evening when it gets really hot and everybody's got their air conditioner turned on, right? So there's almost a doubling of, of, of energy demand in, in this period of the day. And so the challenge is that uh, sources like nuclear and coal don't ramp up very quickly. And so what we need is some source we can turn on and off without much of a penalty. And so natural gas and hydropower fit the bill there. And if you've got hydropower, it's even better because it's a lot cheaper than natural gas.
0: When thinking about hydropower, a challenge arises with changes in the amount of water flowing from a reservoir into a hydropower facility. When there's a decrease in water flowing into a facility, there's a decrease in the amount of power being generated. And when there's a decrease in the amount of power being generated, there are decreases in revenues. This can create a financial disruption for the hydropower operation.
1: We're trying to figure out how we're going to both characterize all that variability in revenues generated by hydropower and then how we manage it. And so one of the factors that contributes a lot is inflows to the reservoir, right? Makes sense. Water's the fuel that turns the turbines. If we have less water, we have less generation. But we're not interested in generation here. We're interested in revenues. And so if we're interested in revenues, we see that inflows and revenues don't match up quite so well. And that's because the price of electricity varies. And so if we're trying to get an understanding of this risk and we put seasonal inflows and seasonal revenues on a plot, seasonal inflows don't capture all the things we need uh, in order to understand what what, uh, the variability in hydropower revenues. Um, But what a smart graduate student, Jordan Kern, who's now a professor at NC State figured out is, what does the utility have to do if it doesn't have hydropower? Well, it's got to turn to natural gas. And the cost of that natural gas-based generation is closely tied to the price of natural gas. So he put together an index that combined inflows and natural gas price. And there we have excellent agreement between seasonal revenues and the index. So what's this tell us? It tells us two things. It tells us, one, that we have a good understanding of the risk. And two, it gives us some mathematical foundation around which to build a strategy for managing the risk.
0: By combining inflows and natural gas price and looking at revenues, co-fires can better understand the risk and come up with a strategy to manage that risk. So you might be wondering, what kind of strategy could help manage this kind of risk?
1: We've taken that information that we have on both electricity price, natural gas price, and inflows, how they're correlated to develop a new collar contract A contract that that is going to manage variability in the risk makes it much easier to plan, makes it much easier for creditors to have the kind of confidence that inspires lower interest rates. Lots of potential benefits here.
0: These collar contracts would allow hydropower facilities to make payments during years when hydropower generation and revenue are high. During years when generation and revenues are low, they would be given payouts. Following our conversation with Shiraklis, Hope Thompson, a Co-Fires alum and current project director for the Environmental Finance Center at the UNC School of Government, took the stage with her colleague Delia Wedner. We continue talking about public utility infrastructure,
2: but this time with a different lens. Affordability for customers. Paying for environmental services and protections is challenging. The cost of doing so is rising over time, and the folks who are paying for them are facing financial pressure from a lot of different angles so whether it's increasing water quality at a regional reservoir or a homeowner who's trying to weatherize their home or maybe a local government that wants to upgrade their 50-year-old treatment plant um, we're often asking the question of who's going to pay for this where's the money going to come from and how will paying for these services impact the individuals communities and governments that are paying for them so we're usually talking about uh, small utilities, um, and we focus a lot on water. So drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater, uh, these are provided by infrastructure, right? We don't just get water out of the ground if you're getting it from a, from a utility. It has to go through treatment processes, and it has to be delivered to your home. Um, and this is really challenging for especially small systems like we work with because this infrastructure is really quite expensive. Uh, we know that some of these are, are big, right? City of Raleigh, New Hanover, Durham, Owasa, uh, but a lot of these are really small communities that are just trying to deliver these services that are protective of the environment and of public health to their local communities, and they often are struggling to do so.
0: So what tends to be the solution for utilities with infrastructure that is aging and or in need of repair? Often, the answer impacts a utility's customers.
2: It's tempting to say, well, let's just change this or let's just change this policy and everything will kind of wash away. But there's a lot of competing priorities for these utilities. The local politics is one that we run into a lot. You might know what is the best strategy or internal policy to implement for your utility, but it's really unpopular at the ballot box. um, So it doesn't actually happen. And then regulatory requirements. So for good reasons, there are stringent um, standards that these utilities have to meet to protect public health and the environment, uh, but they're challenging to meet. So they can't just slash and burn their budgets willy-nilly, they have to be able to maintain those standards over time. When we're seeing a utility that's struggling, we often suggest a rate increase might um, might be one way to generate sufficient revenues to cover management of the utility. But
0: rate increases can be hard on customers, and right here in Chapel Hill, residents can find it difficult to pay for their water resources.
2: Folks in our town who are making less than $25,000 a year, they're spending upwards of 4, 7, and 11 percent of their annual income on their water and wastewater bill alone. So no rent, electricity, internet, food, none of that. This is just water and wastewater.
0: This year, Thompson and Wegner have been working together to look at strategies for improving affordability. These solutions come in the form of customer assistance programs, which can be used to help lower-income customers pay their water bills and thus prevent water cutoffs. Here's Delia Wegner talking about customer assistance programs.
3: These CAPs usually target low-income customers, and they can do this in several ways. For example, there could be a long-term bill discount program or even a temporary payment to help prevent a water cutoff. Bill discounts are the most popular type, but The type of cap that a um, utility implements really depends on the legality of funding caps in their state. Um, Washington state, I believe is the only state that explicitly allows a utility to implement a cap with their um, rate revenues and to charge different rates to different customers. Currently,
0: North Carolina charges the same rate to every customer, but locally, there are ways utilities themselves are helping customers. The Orange County Water and Sewer Authority, or OWASA, for example, is able to provide temporary assistance to customers, but North Carolina law prevents how long this assistance can be provided to customers. To better understand programs at the municipal level that could have a greater impact, Thompson and Wegner looked outside the state.
3: One of the most innovative models that we found is used in Philadelphia and Baltimore, and it's this income based billing model. So, for low income customers who qualify, their monthly water and sewer bills can be limited to just 2 to 4% of their household income. Unfortunately, this is not something that we can do in North Carolina at this time. Even though
0: this customer assistance program wouldn't fly in North Carolina right now, municipalities are still working to make paying water bills a less daunting task.
3: Right next door in the city of Durham, revised their cutoff warning letter to use plain language and clear directions on what to do next when a customer is facing a potential water cutoff.
0: After discovering that language and cutoff letters could be confusing to their customers, the city of Durham revised their letters to use plain language and clear directions.
3: The original cutoff letter and what it says is, Your payment must be received in our office by 5 p.m. on the last business day prior to the disconnect date. Which is like, what does that mean? Like, what is the last business day? Your payment must be received. Like, why am I even getting this letter in the mail? So they revised it. If you do not pay or contact us by 5 p.m. on June 23rd, your water will be shut off on June 24th. So this provides a really clear directive to the customer. This is what you have to do by this certain time or else your water will be cut off. So a simple change like this doesn't require them to charge different rates to different customers and is something that Owasa could do right now um, that's legal under North Carolina law. Um, And even though it doesn't provide a direct financial benefit to customers, it does help them understand what's happening and how they can prevent their water from getting cut off.
0: These two conversations by Co-Fires and the Environmental Finance Center were enlightening. We depend on utilities for access to electricity, water, and more. I think most of us probably don't think about everything that has to happen before we flip on a light switch to turn on a light, or how we access water from the tap. We've engineered systems to give us access to these resources, but changes to our environment and aging infrastructure can create financial stress, both on utilities and the customers depending on those utilities. That's it for this bonus episode. I hope you'll join us for our next bonus episode where we'll be exploring urban heat islands and strategies for building resilient energy systems. We'll talk to you next time on the Sustainable Carolina Podcast.